Hey there, welcome to another edition of Livewire. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. This week, we are full of advice. Not, not me and Elena, you don't need that, but our guests, they've got all kinds of wisdom and some of it's really hard earned, like Michael Arsenault. Okay, he knows exactly what it's like to be both a New York Times bestselling author and someone still getting calls from bill collectors regarding his unpaid student loans. He writes about it in his book, I Don't Want to Die Poor. Then we'll check in with professional advice giver, Daniel Lavery. He writes the Dear Prudence column for Slate and is going to talk about his evangelical upbringing, coming out as trans, and balancing giving other people life advice while also trying to navigate his own life. Then we're going to hear some music from Jonathan Russell of The Head and the Heart. We've got a great show for you, and it gets started right after this. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of LiveWire is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving or cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. How's it going? Oh my gosh. I am so relieved to even be here this week. It's a beautiful day in Portland mm-hmm. and I decided to try to sneak a little jog in Oh no! right before the show. And as you know, they call this place Bridgetown for a reason. It's because the Willamette River runs right through town and there are tons of bridges. And I already didn't have enough time to do this. And I was on the other side of the Hawthorne Bridge when it went up. It's like oh, a drawbridge. Yeah. For a giant sailboat. Like the opening to the TV show Portlandia when the right. when the bridge opens. I, I was like, I'm going to have to dictate my part of the show into my watch and email it to Elena. Now I have in my brain, you're running up one side <laughs> of the Hawthorne Bridge as it's inclining, <laughs> leaping yes. across the gap. That's and exactly then, what I and did. And then just like sliding down. And that's, then- ex- that's how committed I am to us doing this radio show each week. Speaking of which, Molly, are we recording? We're rolling. All right. Take it away, Elena. From PRX is Livewire. This week, writers Michael Arsenault and Daniel Lavery, with music from Jonathan Russell from The Head and the Heart. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello, and now the host of Livewire, Lou Burbank. Hey, thank you so much, Elena Passarello. Thanks everyone for tuning in. We have such a fun and interesting show in store for you this week. 
course, we have asked the audience a question, which we're going to get the answer to coming up in a moment. That question was, what's a piece of financial advice you'd give to your younger self? This is in honor of Michael Arsenault's book, I Don't Want to Die Poor. So stay tuned for those responses. First, though, we have to kick things off with the best news we've heard all week. This is our little moment at the top of the show to remind ourselves and you all that there is some good news happening in the world. Elena, what's the best news you heard all week? Okay, I have sports news because, you know, I am so knowledgeable in the sports. Can't get you to stop talking about all of the sports. <laughs> I know sport. I know how to sport. Um, no, so this this is about the Paralympic Games, which okay. have a real soft spot for me because um, they happen a couple weeks after the Olympic Games in the same city where the Olympics are held. And so mm-hmm. when the Olympics came to Atlanta when I was 18, I did a little bit for the Olympics, but it was a lot more accessible to go to the Paralympic Games. So I saw more and I just like hung out with all these Paralympians that were kind of like partying on the streets of Atlanta. And I just had the best time. It was so fun. And there's a story in the BBC today about an American Paralympian named Matt Stutzman from Iowa, who is a world-class archer, took the silver in 2012, uh, set a world record for longest shot in 2015. And the way that he performs archery is using his legs because he was born without arms and just uh, kind of developed dexterity with his feet from the get-go, from the jump, and yeah. and then got into archery about 10 years ago, practices eight hours a day, and he's amazing. There's a video of him shooting an arrow from like half of a football field away from a parked car with its windows what? rolled down. The arrow goes <laughs> through the windows of the car, passenger side and driver's side, and then hits a target on the other side of the car. That's <laughs> like from the Robin Hood cartoon movie. Yeah. That's like kind of like trick archery. It was amazing. And I don't think that's what you do at the Olympics. I think that was just like for bragging and swagging rights. Yeah. But it's for yeah. the gram. It's all for the gram. Totally. Um, He just seems great. He also races cars. He works on cars as his job uh, in his spare time and travels all over the country. I am like so officially on Team Stutzman. I cannot wait to uh, see him perform in the Paralympic Games. So go Matt. All right. And if they ever do turn shooting arrows through cars into an Olympic sport, I feel like Stutzman's going to be at the top of the list. Yeah. He's currently ranked number one in the world at doing that. It will begin and end with him. Right. Like it'll be like the like he will just be the alpha and the omega of that particular sport. My best news I heard all week comes all the way from La Romana, Spain. Mm. Okay, where this guy, when he was 14 years old, his name is Andres Canto. He got into an argument with his parents. I don't know if this is (laughs) specific to this part of Spain or maybe just Andres. But the argument was that his parents wouldn't let him go to a local village wearing a (laughs) tracksuit. So, Smart parents. <laughs> so he was 14. He was very frustrated by this. I think we can all relate. What we might not all be able to relate to is what he did next, which was he apparently went and grabbed his grandfather's pickaxe and he started angrily attacking the ground with the pickaxe. Oh, my God. <laughs> and instead of going to town, he spent the afternoon and evening digging a, a fairly sizable hole in the yard <laughs> and then 
just continued to do it for the last six years. He's 20 what? years old now, and he has built this insane underground chill-out cave. It has Wi-Fi. It has all this, like, structural reinforcement. He and his buddy would work on this thing for, like, five to six hours a day at certain points. Like, it just became his thing that he was doing all the time. His parents... Uh, well, they don't have that much say in it anymore because he's 20. I don't know, he's, yeah. <laughs> he's an adult now, but they're, according to this article, cool with it. And he just loves to go hang out in his underground cave and just kind of like relax there. They said the temperature is totally stable. You know, it never gets too hot or too cold because it's underground. Throughout the six years in building this like underground like palace now, this news article says he has spent around 50 euros total. That has been the total cost. Oh, that's not of bad. Building yeah, of building his underground layer. I was forever as a kid starting underground fort projects. You were? Yes. I had this fantasy. I mean, this what this guy has built was 12-year-old Luke Burbank's fantasy. Oh. I imagined like lights and couches. and I would start digging. And then I don't know if you ever tried to dig a hole, but it would just get smaller and smaller unless you – like you have to be very disciplined about keeping the kind of integrity of the hole going. And eventually it would just be this little tiny – hole that wasn't really going anywhere and then I would drop the shovel go inside to get some like orange juice or something mm -hmm. and never come back to it until my dad ran the lawnmower over the shovel and I was in big trouble <laughs> well okay I have two questions yeah one is Andres in his sweatsuit in his underground cave <laughs> there is a picture suit. of him is he wearing actually it? I'll be honest with you he's not in his sweatsuit he's shirtless and dude's buff yeah. from digging this hole <laughs> for, for the last years. <laughs> six years second question did you call the Tim Hortons in La Romana Spain or I mean what is Tim Hortons is it like Esteban Hortanos or something <laughs> I did. I had to call Esteban Hortanos because that's my official way to fact check the name of any city that we're talking about here on the best news that we heard all week. Hey, let's invite our first guest onto the show. He is the author of the New York Times bestselling collection of essays. I can't date Jesus. Love, sex, family, race, and other reasons I've put my faith in Beyonce. Booklist calls his latest book, I Don't Want to Die Poor, unflinchingly smart and wickedly funny. Let's take a listen to this. It's our conversation we recorded with Michael Arsenault in May of last year. Michael Arsenault, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Um, I found this book just uh, to be such a fascinating read. Thank you. Your, your writing style is so funny and full of so many great references um, from pop culture and other places. And yet it's about a really serious topic, which is, uh, you know, debt and what that does to people, particularly people in marginalized communities. For somebody who's hearing this on the radio right now and maybe they can't identify with like how a college degree can really change the course of their life because it was just a given they were going to go to college. Mm -hmm. Can you explain what it was like for you, what it represented for you as a young person in Houston? Well, you know, I think in this country, for a lot of people, we're also this dream that social mobility is like the ticket to kind of like basically rising class. But like specifically for marginalized people, in my case, like being black and Southern working class, um, 
I can only think of black people who kind of do well-to-do, who either got a job through the government, which is, you know, a large employer a lot of times, traditionally for black people when they were able to enter the middle class or through a college education. I don't come from a middle-class background. I'm very much like working class, lower middle class. Some might interpret as poor. I've seen the divide on that. But that said, like, I just don't come from money. So a college degree for me represented a, a way to have kind of like the kind of life of basically when my mom got cable, <laughs> we could afford cable uh-huh. for a little bit. And I was able to watch stuff on the news or like the stuff read the newspapers or like, basically mirror like the white guys that I saw. Like, you know, by the time I discovered David Sedaris, I didn't realize it was such a roadblock <laughs> to becoming David Sedaris if you happen to be somebody <laughs> like me, you know? <laughs> you learn those things along the way. Um, I, when I announced my first book uh, in the trades, I Can't Date Jesus, I gave them to say, just say it's like David Sedaris if his dad had gold teeth. Um, <laughs> that made sense for me. <laughs> yeah. I still think it does, but yeah. I basically write about really serious, dark stuff, but with humor because, um, and this is kind of like the difference is, like, respectfully, like, I'm black, don't come from money, and this country doesn't like people like me. So while I can make fun of the everyday things that happen in life in the same way a lot of those writers do, like I like Sloan Crosley, the reality is that my everyday life is just so different. So even mm-hmm. in the theme of the book with I Don't Want to Die Poor, it's about student loan debt. Like student loan debt impacts, I mean, clearly every American, but mm-hmm. it can impact some harder than others. Like I got a degree, did everything I was supposed to do, all the metrics you're supposed to say, but they still had this belief that like, oh, you're black and gay. Ooh, I don't think anybody wants to buy that. So um, mm. that's the like, certain things like I'm going to have to deal with racism, even if I were born with a silver spoon in my mouth, you know, this presumption. Right. So a college degree in a lot of ways is just kind of an, another tool for me to kind of get ahead or at least have even a fraction of what's a fair shake for everybody else. Mm-hmm. This is Livewire House Party. We're talking to Michael Arsenault. His new book is I Don't Want to Die Poor. Your first book, I Can't Date Jesus, was a New York Times bestseller at the same time as you're like losing your health care coverage. Like yes. this is the weird <laughs> duality of your life, right? Yeah, I really wanted to kind of remove this idea of what, you know, success looks like, particularly like in the terms of a writer, because people kind of, you know, I'm just as... Um, I'll say I didn't uh, I didn't think I would end up like Carrie Bradshaw because I never believed she could really afford that rent because I knew how mm-hmm. things worked. That would be uh, we have to this is public radio. So we have to say that's the lead character from Sex and Sorry, the City. So, Carrie Bradshaw, the lead. That. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's this idea of like, oh, you're a New York Times bestselling author. So you must have a lot of money. Well, actually, in publishing, um, it's kind of like poor people's uh, recording industry, which is even worse. Um, mm-hmm. And again, the idea that. Like, if I were a white guy, and I know this for a fact because I, based on the market, when you do a nonfiction book proposal, it's very much a business proposal as it is like your creative vision. So you have to say what's on the market and how you're different. There are people with the same level metrics as I did on paper or even not as, you know, known at the time. They still got deals faster than me and they got more money than me because, again, the presumption was they're more marketable. Um, so that was a lot of what I can't date Jesus. So, yeah, I, I made the New York Times bestseller list, which I'm so fortunate about because um, it really matters. It actually helped other people get more money um, because now they can list my book as an idea of success. Mm-hmm. But at the same time as I write in the book, I made only $15,000 from that. You know, some people got like 50, 75, 100. I know people got even more. Yeah. And people imagine that when you get a book advance, you live off it for the time that it takes you to right. write the book, right? And $15,000 that you have to take out taxes and agent fees. There's no way that you could live off that. I was still freelance writing when I did the first um, book. And when the first book was released, you know, as I mentioned, and I don't want to die poor, I was having some really hard financial struggles. It was like, you know, just when I thought I was secure, something happened. 
Um, and I wrote, I don't want to die poor through a lot of struggle. It was some of the very mm-hmm. things that I thought I had just gotten over. And even this yeah. year, there are a lot of people uh, my age, I turned 36 um, in April. This is the second financial crisis of my adulthood, you know? Yeah, this is the second once in a generation yeah. financial crisis that your generation has had to go through. Um, uh, well, we got to take a quick break here. We're talking to Michael Arsenault. His new book is I Don't Want to Die Poor. This is Livewire Radio. We will be back in just a moment. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. I didn't see you there. It's that time of year again. My seasonal allergies are back. Oh, congratulations. But also, it's our spring member drive, which is happening right now through May 17th. Oh, I like that much more than seasonal allergies. Yeah, if you are not yet a member of Livewire's League of Extraordinary Listeners, well, now is the time to do it. Why? Well, because this League of Extraordinary Listeners... Uh, is what keeps the lights on over at Livewire Inc., uh, which is definitely not the association that we are part of. I'm probably a 501c3. They don't let me near any of the paperwork mm-hmm. or bookkeeping, and it's really better that way. Yes. Point is, we we are only able to keep doing this show because of support from our members, and we would love it if you could join us in that right now. Plus, there are all kinds of sweet perks, including... Uh, special discounted tickets to live recordings, on-air shout-outs, exclusive content. Uh, and, Elena, uh, one more thing, that, of course, we would not be a self-respecting public radio show if we didn't offer this. If we didn't offer the most iconic public radio swag of all time, a tote bag. True iconic status. Yeah, but it's not just any tote bag. This is like a really good tote bag. It's got a second zipper, an internal zipper. Yes, whatever you want to put in the tote bag, that's your business, Okay. What we're mm-hmm. here to talk about is you keeping LiveWire going. So head on over to LiveWireRadio.org to see the various member levels. It does not matter how much you are giving every month to LiveWire. It just matters that you do it because it goes a long way for us. So thank you. Welcome back to LiveWire. I'm Luke Burbank at my house. Elena Passarello is over there at her place. And we are talking to Michael Arsenault. His book is I Don't Want to Die Poor. We recorded this conversation back in May of last year. Check it out. How much debt did you actually incur in student loans uh, to, to graduate from Howard University? Um, about $100,000. Um, I ended up having an extra year. Um, I had some health issues. I was basically overexerting myself trying to finish on time, so that kind of contributed mm-hmm. to another problem. So about $100,000, uh, and much of that was put like the lion's share of the debt that I took um, is on a 12-year plan um, with very little ways of like getting out of it. That's kind of the thing about private loans. They're basically like, you give us the money or we're going to ruin you. And even after we ruin you, you're still bound legally to pay us. Uh, can you talk about getting a call on Christmas Eve? Yeah. That seems like that was a rough moment for you. I am back home for Christmas. And sometimes I can't um, always, I, in the past, I hadn't been able to afford always to go home for Christmas. Um, it was home. It was bad. I mean, not bad enough. It was nice to be home. But I was also like the twin bunk bed that I slept in as a child um, stretched out. Um, Do you have any of the same posters still up? Oh, everything is still there, except it just looks kind of sad sometimes. But um, <laughs> it's, a lot of it is still there, particularly the Mickey Mouse Rock in the House posters. So I actually could see that while they called. And it's Christmas Eve morning around, what, seven something? Like, 
I literally just woke up. I flew in the night before. It's Christmas Eve. If I didn't have the money two days ago, I'm not probably going to have it for you today. And even if I did, it's Christmas Eve. Leave me alone, you heartless person. Um, and she wasn't even like the meanest, but it, the, 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 the act itself was mean. And, and that chapter is about how cruel a lot of the bill collectors can be to people who they presume mm-hmm. just by virtue of struggling that they're so much better than. So they kick them when they're down. There's this stigma attached to like getting a phone call uh, asking when the money w- is going to come. But then when you look at, you know, I, I hope you don't mind me saying like $800 a month when you're 23 years old. No, I'm, that, you know, I, just, yeah, I'm glad you said it because now it's even oh, it's all been over a thousand. Like the idea that I, I'm expected to pay that. That's a mortgage, you know? Yeah, like, <laughs> I've been paying them. I pretty much have had a, the equivalent. An, of a subprime mortgage loan. It's the educational equivalent of that because private debt in particular, um, black people carry a heavier burden of that. We disproportionately make up that hundred billion of the trillion that's in private debt because we kind of innate, not innately, but we, because of the dis, um, disparities in this country don't have as much and people pry on us and take advantage because they do right. know how, you know, particularly black, it's black college graduates and most black people graduate from black colleges. It's, 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 it's ingrained. Really? The scam is ingrained in the system. Yeah. <laughs> I teach at a, a, a non HBCU. I mm-hmm. teach at just a, a state school and I often encounter young students, but not necessarily just young people who have just been told their whole lives to, to follow your dream, make it happen, do the work, and then they academically make it, but no, there's no conversation about how they're going to pay for it that's realistic. And, yeah. and, and that's when people get into these situations that seem, you know, unsustainable, right? And we also don't talk about the fact that, like, whether we like it or not, we're not as in control of our fates as we like to admit. You know, I, yeah. I, I own the fact that I took out the loans while I complained about the system itself, but also, you know, acknowledge I graduated during a Great Recession and yeah. <laughs> media, as I understood it, to be imploding. I didn't go in there right. with like these, oh, I'm just going to intern and but like basically like right. the rich white folks who can do it for free and then I'll right. magically waltz into this job and be paid all of this. I knew what it was and took the sacrifices and theme my life around it anyway. It's just when I graduated, there just was literally nothing sure. there. And as of right now, you know, I feel bad for a lot of college graduates and high school graduates. There's nothing there. It's not their fault. This is Livewire Radio. I'm Luke Burbank with Elena Passarella. We're talking to Michael Arsenault. His new book is I Don't Want to Die Poor. And you just sort of mentioned it, and it comes up in this book, which is like the media industry in particular it stays very white yes. because being able to do an internship for free, being able to work for no money is itself privilege. Right. And it keeps a lot of people who have to make money every day to just pay their bills and have food. It keeps them out of the system. Yeah, and I've even acknowledged that that even of the few black people that I've met across media, I don't think even a lot of them realize that even being middle class and being able to afford these sacrifices is a privilege. The fact that I was basically just skimped by and doing a lot of those things is like a privilege. That's like literally just one lucky step I had than somebody else. And the people, the black middle class I'm talking about are maybe just two steps ahead of me. It's it's not that I wouldn't say don't do what you want to do. You can always find ways to make money, but writing has been devalued itself. The people that are literally writing the articles trying to tell them how to find a job don't know where their next check is going to come from, sadly. Right. <laughs> yeah. What do you think a fair solution to this would be? Would it just be to basically forgive all student loan debt? Like, How, how can we actually try to fix this problem? Um, I write about debt cancellation um, towards the end of the book. I ended up, you know, 
they're literally going back in and changing some stuff based on what happened with the Morehouse commencement in 2019 and right. Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren both bringing about debt cancellation to the uh, conversation in a really impactful way. Um, it shouldn't be lost on a lot of people that Joe Biden, of all people, is mm-hmm. now even mentioning debt cancellation. So I think that's great. But I think debt cancellation, there's so many studies that already show it would literally boost the economy. Mm-hmm. Um, it would cause people my age to actually buy houses mm-hmm. and the, all these things that you tell us to do. Sure. Hopefully mm-hmm. um, a change in power will allow us to really reset this country because, um, you know, one thing folks keep telling me is my book is so timely now. I'm like, it was timely before this. That's the problem. And we really mm-hmm. have to rectify it. Yeah. I, I mean, is that where you find maybe some slight little bit of hope, Michael Arsenault, that this has been so... Uh, destabilizing and our very way of life has been so disrupted that maybe when we rebuild the next version of our life as a country, maybe we can actually rebuild it in a slightly better fashion. You know what? Even I can't say Jesus and I don't know how poor. It's a lot of dark material, but I would like to think they all end on like a hopeful note. So I'm hopeful about this situation. I would like to think that it will still get better if for no other reason than we just don't have any choice but to be better. Um, Because if this is the way we keep going, it will ultimately be at our own peril and fault one way or the other. So I would like to think people are going to finally wake up. yeah. So yeah. let's be better. Is that is that hopeful enough right now for a pandemic? Hey, uh, that's more that that's more than I can muster. So my hat's off to you, uh, Michael Arsenault. Uh, this his new book is I Don't Want to Die Poor, and it has a, a kind of grim title, but it is just written with such creativity and heart and smarts. It's, I re- highly recommend. It's a great book, man. I really appreciate it. Thank you. That was Michael Arsenault here on Livewire. Uh, His latest book is I Don't Want to Die Poor, and it is now available in paperback. Special thanks this episode to Brad Perry of Portland, Oregon, and Jackie Grant of Salt Lake City, Utah. Brad and Jackie are part of the Livewire member community, and they're generously supporting our show with a donation each month. And we are very thankful for that support because it's genuinely how we are able to keep doing this show week in and week out. So a big thanks to Brad and Jackie for supporting Livewire. This is Livewire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. In honor of our conversation with Michael Arsenault talking about personal finance and things like that, uh, we asked the audience a question this week. It was, what piece of financial advice would you give your younger self? People were sending in all kinds of responses. Elena has been collecting those up. What are you seeing, Elena? Here's one from Graham. Graham's advice to Graham's former self, don't sell your apartment building in San Francisco in 1998. <laughs> oh, man. Can you imagine? <laughs> We had a situation. I don't, I mean, my dad, I hope he doesn't hear this because this is his great kind of financial regret. We were living in this little rental house in Seattle, Washington, in a, you know, a sort of pretty decent neighborhood. And the owners tried to sell it to us for $72,000. And it was not in the cards financially for my parents at the time. And I don't, want to say on the radio what that house is going for in Seattle, but let's just say more, <laughs> more than $72,000. So my dad will occasionally just look into the middle distance and bring it up. 
<laughs> so when I met David, he had just bought a house in Pittsburgh. Your at, husband, my husband David, uh, and his mortgage for this two bedroom house in great shape was under two hundred dollars. He bought oh it over the goodness. phone, and then <laughs> we fell in love, and he sold it for like very small amount of money, like the cost of an air conditioning unit, basically. And now, you know, it's in this part of Pittsburgh with this view of the city. Oh, and it's goodness. it's like worth like 17 billion times that much. If we just would have held on to it, we would have not had <laughs> the same following 10 years. But hey. But look, you know what? Here we are doing this public radio show together. So right. it all sort of worked out. You wouldn't be here if you were some kind of real estate mogul. That's right. If I was like a so. timeshare maven or something. <laughs> All right. What's something else uh, that our listeners wish they could tell the younger versions of themselves in terms of personal finance? This one from Cindy cracks me up. Don't join the record club for a penny. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know how much money I had to pay to those folks uh, in order to get approved for a mortgage to buy my house when I was first starting out? What? (laughs) Because I signed up for that thing. I got all those CDs, and then they kept mailing me what they called the selection of the month. Yeah, Deep Blue Something was mine. Breakfast at Tiffany's. If you open the container, the mailing thing, because you're curious, right, Mm -hmm. as a kid. If you open it, then they won't take it back. Mm -mm. And so then you're stuck with it. I I think I paid about $80 eventually in fees for John Tesh live at Red Rocks. (laughs) And it was on my credit report. They reported me. So when I went to buy a house, the person said... Yeah, we can approve you for this, but first you got to settle up with Columbia House <laughs> over John Tesh. Basically, what it is is every one of these things that the listeners want to tell themselves are things I wish they would have told younger me because I've made every single one of these mistakes. Okay, so now this has turned into a kind of, uh, no offense, stump the chump. So we got to see if yes. you have not heeded any of this advice. Okay. How about this one from Brian? If you were poor for a long time, don't go nuts the first time you get a little bit of money. Oh, I have 100% have been (laughs) guilty. I'm still guilty of that. (laughs) I am the worst with money because I grew up not having any of it. And I always just tell myself, I want to coast in financially on fumes (laughs) at the end of my life. Oh, the die broke philosophy, right? That I know, but not broke, just almost broke. Die (laughs) fumes, die fuming. Die die on fumes, (laughs) bring it in on fumes. All right, one more before we get our next guest out here. Yeah, and I'm desperate to know if you have committed this financial crime. Uh, Probably the answer is yes. Okay, Laura's advice is that joke check that you write to your friend for one penny can still be cashed and then it will trigger a $40 overdraft fee if you are already overdrafted. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I haven't done that, but you know what I was tempted to do when I was a youth? What? Jim Carrey allegedly wrote himself mm-hmm. a check for like $10 million. Have you heard this story? Yeah, yeah. Like, like uh, in it was his like wallet. 10 years from the date or something. Yeah. And then, of course, the story goes that he actually like became this, you know, highly paid, successful Hollywood type at around the time he had hoped. And he was able to, I don't know what, cash the check or write. The, I don't know what he did with the check, but it's this great story of. I never of, thought of about that. Of, yeah. How do you write yourself a check for money that's someone else pays you. (laughs) Okay, speaking of sage advice, our next guest gives out a bunch of it as the writer behind Slate's popular Dear Prudence advice column. His latest book, Something That Will Shock and Discredit You, is about his journey as a trans person. Um, But of course, it's about a lot more than that. It's also about Anne of Green Gables and HGTV, a couple of my favorite topics. 
Uh, let's take a listen to this. It's our conversation with Daniel Lavery. Uh, this was recorded for Livewire in May of last year. Well, thank you so much for, for doing this, Daniel. Thank you so much. I have to admit that I was a little bit nervous to interview you because this book, it has so many literary references in it. And I am not maybe the most well-read person, but I'm also the kind of person that wants to pretend that I know things. And so I was thinking that during the interview, there's a great chance that you might say, oh, well, as you know, uh, Kierkegaard says or whatever. And my impulse is going to be to say, yeah, I know that when I don't, but then I get further into a conversation where like the water just keeps getting deeper. Mm -hmm. So I was thinking if maybe if you make a passing literary reference and I don't get it, I'm not going to stop the show, but I might just ding this bell. Just a, <laughs> like a subtle indicator. So if that happens, I just want you to know what's going on. May I just say, I share your tendency to always want to say, yes, I agree in any conversation um, which also sometimes leads to pretending I've read something I haven't or making yeah. promises that I can't keep. Mm -hmm. Daniel, you really have read uh, a lot of stuff and, and it can tell from reading this book and you're not putting it out in a show off your way. It just seems to be a way that you interpreted the world or made meaning of the world for yourself as a young person was reading a lot, right? Was that a big part of your childhood? Yeah, very much so. And, and thank you too. I, it was my hope that this was not the kind of book that you would pick up and feel as though I have to go read 40 other books before I can read this one. <laughs> yeah. I, I think the, the, the frequent references and the, and the ways that it sort of plays around in, in a variety of, of genres, um, it's helpful if you've read some of the things I'm talking about, but I think usually I'm able to contextualize it enough that you will not be lost and think like, I better go back and replicate your childhood before I can read this book. Um, <laughs> but yeah, very much so. Uh, that was a huge part of, of my childhood was both reading a lot, but then also like trying to watch as much TV as possible. Mm -hmm. um, we always had like an hour long daily TV limit that I was always <gasps> trying to scam my way around. And I think that's part of what made me canny and savvy and like the artful dodger. <laughs> well, it's kind of interesting, uh, Daniel, because you write, I think it's like maybe even page one of this book. You say it's easy enough to sell out an evangelical childhood, which mm -hmm. like that just immediately froze me in my tracks because I feel like my whole career and a lot of my actual like personal life is about pushing back on my evangelical childhood and yeah. like limited TV access. It has really defined my adult life. And, and you're right. It's easy to just kind of it's easy to, to, I guess, maybe lean on that too much as a personality trait. Like I was raised evangelical. You seem to have a more nuanced relationship with your childhood. Well, I, I, and I think specifically what I meant in that moment in terms of the idea of selling out the childhood is referring to the shorthand that kind of in the popular imagination allows people to conjure up an idea of an evangelical childhood and then move on. So it, it wasn't exactly like I want to make sure I say really nice things about it because – Lord knows there's already enough pressure there, you know, yeah. of like don't air the dirty laundry or don't be too critical or don't be a bad sport or don't look like a whiner. Those are all problems that I think come up whenever you write a memoir. Mm -hmm. um, but, but it was maybe more the sense of I don't want to go for the quick and easy beats of isn't this ridiculous and bananas. Um, right. And then have, um, have that just be that because there's also ways that I want to try to invite the reader into that experience without going first to, wow, this is so terrible and bizarre. I wish I was out of here. It's like, I, I also want to go back and say like, yes, terrible or not terrible, bizarre or not bizarre. Let's first visit that place in that time and think about what it was like. And, and we can save some of the later judgments for later. We're talking to Daniel Lavery. He's the author of the book, Something That Will Shock and Discredit You. 
Uh, what did you pitch to your publishers uh, for this book? Like, what did you what, what did you propose this book look like, sound like, read like? I think at one point I used the expression "poetic essay yelling," which I never <laughs> really defined or, or quite made good on. <laughs> I, I often have a difficult part with the sort of elevator pitch part of a project, um, so I tend to either take about 10 pages to fill out a, a part of a book proposal that should be two, or I just try to airily dismiss something I can't quite figure out. And I'll just say, just trust me, um, which is easier to do when you've worked with someone for a long time and they've seen you write other books. Um, but yeah, I, I think I pitched it as some version of exploring various, uh, books and TV shows and myths that I used to define myself as a young person and then revisiting them again in the light of transition. Um, and also with a little bit of like Lionel Hutz sprinkled on the top <laughs> from the Simpsons. <laughs> yes. Yes. Is that where the title comes from? It is. Oh, yeah. that's my favorite literary reference in the book. Now, <laughs> if you want masculine showboating, you can't do better than Phil Hartman. Yeah. Right. Yes. Oh, and then the, the suitcase falls open and it's, I believe it's like an apple core and <laughs> like a skull or something is what Lionel Hutz is bringing to defend he's, his client. He's bringing so much to the table and yet he carries so little with him. Yeah. Um, you, you write in this book about not wanting to write something that felt like maybe a too on the nose or trope filled story about transitioning, which by the way is written about with such a light touch and so... So deftly that it's the, this book is hilarious and also really heartfelt. Thank you. But I also think that some of those tropes get started because there are probably a shared experience. How did you kind of balance those two things? Yeah. So it wasn't like, oh gosh, I have these five books in mind that did it and I hate them. Um, it, it was more like there's often different versions of any story that I might want to tell someone. And I think actually kind of like what you were mentioning earlier about saying you've read a book that you haven't read, there's ways in which it can feel tempting to, to think, I'm pretty sure this shorthand will get across enough of what I'm trying to say that mm -hmm. it'll work. It's not the full version, but it'll work. But then later, if we try to have a more in-depth conversation, I'm going to have to backpedal a lot of it. So you do that kind of like calculation of what version am I going to do right now? So I think it had more to do with this fear of I'm going to tell um, a bad version of this story that will be technically accurate, but not quite true. And it's going to have something to do with like journeys yeah. And, uh, saying things like becoming and like referencing Dusty Springfield's son of a preacher man. And, um, <laughs> right. Cause it's right there. It's yeah. too much. And it would be kind of true, but it would also be sacrificing, I think, reality for a sort of, uh, shorthand or a, a waving away of, of something complicated. So I think it was mostly just like, well, if I put it in the book, I won't do it. <laughs> right. Because it's it's pretty early in the book, so it was almost like a admonition to yourself to not like, get too like Hollywood with it, like a big post-it note, like remember not to write this table of contents. <laughs> right? I, yeah, right. I actually, later then did hear from a, a friend of mine who had thought when they were reading through the book that that was the actual table of contents, and they were like, "Well, when are we going to get to that chapter? I want to read it." <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Livewire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. And we are talking to Daniel Lavery. He is the author of the book, Something That Will Shock and Discredit You. Uh, you were talking about being able to uh, still do your job. And one of your jobs is uh, as the Dear Prudence advice columnist for Slate. Yes. Um, you've had that job for a while, right? Yeah. Gosh, I, I think it's coming up on four years uh, fairly soon. And I'm, I'm, I guess I'm wondering, was it 
helpful uh, in writing advice to other people or challenging to be going through your own transition as other people are asking you questions about their life? Mm -hmm. Often I have found uh, because of the way that that job is so, you know, it's a well-oiled machine and it's very like, it's very straightforward. Like I know when I'm doing a shift and when I'm not, and when (laughs) I'm not doing a shift, I'm not thinking about it too much. Um, so often it would be like, this is great. This is Monday. And so my thing today is I help other people with their problems. Um, and there were times, I think, especially before I had come out publicly that felt very like my whole body is one big nerve and (laughs) it hurts and everyone's looking at me and I hate it. And, um, so there were certainly ways in which it could kind of, uh, feel like a reprieve. And then there were other times where it felt, um, anxiety inducing. And then I think coming out was really, really helpful because just before that I was like, what if my voice starts changing on the podcast and everyone writes in and they say, do you have a cold? And I have to say, Mm. no, I'm trans. And then they say, well, we thought you had a cold. And then they (laughs) yell at you and, you know, just the kind of fears you can build up in your mind before something happens. It's like it can go badly a million times over and over again in your head. Mm -hmm. And it can only, even if it does go badly, it can only go badly one way at a time. Mm -hmm. Uh, this book is obviously about your experience and, and transitioning is a big part of obviously your life and of what people talk to you about. Mm-hmm. But are you looking forward to a point uh, in the future where it is a smaller and smaller part of what you talk about and of how people maybe think of your work? Hmm. Certainly, I think I, I can imagine myself really looking forward to engaging with transition in my work as a writer, as a person, as a part of my community um, in ways that have to do with things other than early transition, maybe. Mm -hmm. Um, I I can't imagine wanting to get to a point in my life where I would want to feel like it was less a part of it or, or something that we just considered as something that happened a long time ago and is no longer especially relevant. But I do think that shift from the kind of questions of early transition, um, into sort of medium stage or, or, or having it happened, you know, more than 10 years ago, I I do look forward to that because I think you, you have different concerns, interests, questions, curiosities, desires, et cetera, um, when you, you know, didn't just come out three years ago, um, when you came out 10 years ago, 15, 20, I'm looking forward to, to being an old, old trans person. I think that will be really interesting. What are you hoping people take away from the experience of reading the book? What would be a good outcome? I think of a number of good outcomes. Uh, mostly I think a, a sense of, um, elasticity, a sense of, potentially wanting to read something else as a follow-up, um, uh, potentially a sense of um, ways to think about things that can be challenging or difficult, but with, as you say, a light touch, I often want to do that. Um, I think that's worth doing. And not, not just not just in the sense of shying away from weightiness, but um, in, in being able to shift quickly from, from a number of different modes of engagement. Um, if they just want to treat the Pilgrim's Progress a bit more goofily and right. a bit more excessively, um, that would that would be a good outcome, I think. Um, Lionel Hutz in The Pilgrim's Progress. <laughs> oh, God, I would watch that. That'd be so good. Yeah, uh, maybe that can be that can be a future project, Daniel. Uh, I feel Got like you'd be the time per- on my hands. You're the perfect person to write that too, with your love of Lionel Hutz and your deep knowledge of uh, The Pilgrim's Progress. So. Uh, We will look for that. Hey, thank you so much for coming on the show today. We really appreciate it. Stay safe out there in New York, okay? Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This was wonderful. That was Daniel Lavery. His book is Something That Will Shock and Discredit You, and it is currently out in paperback right now. 
This is Livewire, coming to you by way of PRX. I'm Luke Burbank, here with Elena Passarello. Uh, We have to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere, because when we come back, we have music from Jonathan Russell from the wonderful band The Head and The Heart. That's just ahead, so stay with us. Livewire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal Tea this season. Formerly known as Tea Chai Tay, Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest. And they make one-of-a-kind handcrafted tea blends like cinnamon churro chai and blueberry cream Earl Grey. Use the code LIVEWIRE, all lowercase, for 20% off at portaltea.co. Welcome back to LiveWire. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. All right, let's wrap things up with a little music. I have been following the band The Head and the Heart uh, since their kind of earliest days. They were at an open mic in Seattle, and I just kept hearing the name The Head and the Heart. And then finally, I actually saw them in person, and I was like, oh, this is what everyone's been talking about. They are, like, really incredible. Take a listen to this. It's Jonathan Russell, one of the members of The Head and the Heart, who he caught up with at his house in April of last year. Take a listen to this. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Luke. Where are you at right now? Uh, I am in my apartment in San Francisco. Mm. Yeah. Uh, have you been feeling creative over the last few weeks? Yes. Um, you know, actually, one of the beautiful silver linings to this whole thing, for me anyways, has been uh, I've been home for a full month for the first time in five years. Wow. Which is literally not ex- an exaggeration at all. So, um, yeah, it's, not, it's, it's amazing what your brain does when it, when it can relinquish its, uh, you know, anxiety mode of like, wait, 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 when was that plane ride? Or when, mm-hmm. when was that flight again? Or like, um, so I've been, uh, I've been making the most of being still and um, being home with my fiance and all of my, all of my toys. <laughs> How's that going, by the way? If you're somebody, you're a traveling musician, mm-hmm. and then suddenly you get to actually live with the person that you're engaged to? Yeah. Like, is that a different vibe? You know, day seven, it was like, hey, I'm, I'm John. Uh, <laughs> uh, we've never seen each other this often. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's like, how do, how do you take your coffee? <laughs> um, <laughs> so the, the wedding is still on? <laughs> wedding, is st- wedding is still on. Uh, people are still in love. Um, <laughs> things are getting worked out. I'm doing therapy. You know, it's, uh, yeah. it's all positive now. Um, yeah. It was an adjustment for sure, um, but a good one and a necessary one. Um, are you keeping in touch with the other members of the Head and the Heart? Are you guys Zooming mm-hmm. or do you email nope. or what? No, nah, we don't even talk. I'm wow. I'm just kidding. Yeah, no, we talk like <laughs> we talk like six times a day, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> I swear to God, I feel like I have a full-time job now that I'm um, – I guess I mean I guess I've always had a full time job, but it, it we're I think we're in more we're more in communication now almost. It sucks because you don't have a good excuse now for not mm-hmm. getting back to someone. Yeah, mm-hmm. I know. It's like I don't have time. Like, yes, that's all you have actually. You have nothing but time now, John. So, <laughs> well, what song are we going to hear? I was going to do a song called "Glory of Music." It's okay. uh, the closing track on uh, "Living Mirage," which is our, the last record we put out. Is there anything about this song that feels related to the time we're all living in? Yeah, I mean, this song, even like when we put the record out, especially it felt like one of the most relevant songs on the album, but 
Um, there's so many other like flashy cousins that you hear before you hear that one. Yeah. Um, and I just couldn't really tell if it ever got its day in court. So to me, it just, it just represents this like collective consciousness. Um, and I think what I think again is as a beautiful silver lining of, of this, uh, pandemic is there's more humanity coming out of everyone right now. Um, yeah. cause we have to, and I hope that once we no longer have to quote unquote, that at least the humanity will remain, um, because it just, it just reminds you of, you know, like if everyone goes to the same problems, I mean, you just, you stop looking at everyone's differences as often and, and more of the things that we all go through together. So, uh, to get off the soapbox, hopefully the song is also just a beautiful song for people and it doesn't have to be so heavy. All right. This is Jonathan Russell from the head and the heart on the live wire house party.
Wow, Jonathan Russell, <coughs> the head and the heart. My whistling in celebration was um, not nearly on the level of your whistling in that song. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> well, Jonathan, thank you, man, and, and stay safe and stay creative, and we look forward to uh, seeing you and the rest of the head and the heart back out in the world when things start moving yeah, again. Yeah, likewise. Thank you guys so much for having me, and I uh, hope you guys are staying sane. So cheers, and really appreciate it, guys. That's Jonathan Russell from The Head and the Heart right here on Livewire. Um, the Head and the Heart, by the way, just released a really cool cover of Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young's Our House. Uh, and they have this very cool concert documentary that's out live from Pike Place Market where they actually play on the roof of the market. Um, it is very cool and it's streaming on Amazon Prime. Okay, before we get out of here, a little preview of next week's episode of Livewire. We are going to be talking to the writer Clint Smith about his really, really well-written new book called How the Word is Passed. He travels to all these landmarks and sort of places that historically were associated with the legacy of slavery. You definitely want to tune in for that. You're going to learn a lot. Then we're going to talk to the comedian Chris Gethard about his new special, Half My Life, which follows his 2019 stand-up tour. And we're going to hear some music from somebody I've been hoping we could get on the show for a long time, Faye Webster. Plus, of course, we will be getting your answers to our audience question. Elena, what are we going to ask the Livewire listeners for next week's show? I'm so excited about this question. I legitimately want to hear all of the answers. I want to, I want to live vicariously through our mm -hmm. listeners and their answers to this question. What are you most looking forward to this summer? Woo! Yes, I'm excited for that. You know, it was Memorial Day this mm -hmm. week, and I called the sandwich place in my neighborhood to get a sandwich, and they said, we're out of bread. And I took that to mean people in Portland, it was a beautiful Memorial Day. People in Portland were going out to the beach. They were having things in their backyard. They were buying mm -hmm. sub sandwiches. Mm -hmm. They had consumed all the bread from this one place. And I thought, mm -hmm. that's good. Nature is healing. We're eating sub sandwiches again. We're back to the, the carbs. It made me feel weirdly encouraged. Just like, yeah. okay, we're doing this. We're re-engaging with life. So. I can't wait. That's, that's exciting. If you have something um, bread or non-bread related that you want to tell us about involving this summer, let us know. We may read your answer on the air. You can hit us up on various social media places. We are at Livewire Radio. All right, that's going to do it for this episode of Livewire. A huge thanks to our guests, Daniel Lavery, Michael Arsenault, and Jonathan Russell. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. Tim Harkins is our production director. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko. Our assistant editor is Trey Hester. And Jennifer Vo is our social media manager. Our music is composed by A. Walker Spring. Molly Pettit is our technical director and mixer. Additional funding provided by the Oregon Cultural Trust and the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. This week, we'd like to thank members Brad Perry of Portland, Oregon, and Jackie Grant of Salt Lake City, Utah. For more information about our show or how you can find our podcast, head on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole Livewire team. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week.
Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are Livewire subscribed. And if you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you. 